wintry haw is burning out of season. Crab of the thorn, a small light for small people. Wanting no more from them, but that they keep the wick of self-respect from dying out. Not having to blind them with illumination. But sometimes, when your breath plumes in the frost, it takes the roaming shape of Diogenes with his lantern, seeking one just man. So you end up scrutinized from behind the haw, he holds up at eye level on its twig, and you flinch before its bonded pith and stone, its blood prick that you wish would test and clear you, its pecked at ripeness that scans you, then moves on. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, the podcast taking a closer look at poetry. This week's poem is The Hall Lantern by Seamus Heaney. In 2023, it's been 10 years since the poet's passing, and I think it's fair to say that his presence, both in Irish poetry and poetry at large, is still incredibly alive. It might seem hyperbole to claim that Seamus Heaney was a titan of poetry, but if anything, That is simply the truth. There are few poets who were ever as popular, both with academics and general readers, as was Seamus Heaney. As author and poet Blake Morrison put it succinctly, Heaney was that rare thing, a poet rated highly by critics and academics, yet popular with the common reader. Though personally I find the phrase common reader a touch insulting. Heaney seemed to be capable of invoking the dense, intertextual poetic language so loved by academics, while simultaneously possessing an ability to allow any reader to feel and inhabit a place he described. The places he described were numerous, from London's underground, a mythic limbo complete with psychopomp, an escort to the dead, and all. But most common in his work, a defining source of imagery, was the landscape of Ireland. Not some romanticised, idyllic version, but a place rendered properly, mud and all. Nature and the landscape seemed an ingrained part of Heaney's psyche, as this poem proves. That intertextuality, the intentional referencing of another work of literature or fiction whilst creating a text, became a hallmark of Heaney's work particularly in relation to the classics, both Greek and Roman. This influence was a product of his education. It was not unusual to find Pan in a tube station, or Hermes in a stream in a field in the middle of nowhere. Gods and monsters roamed Ireland when Heaney held a pen in his hand. This approach to a melded mythology accomplished two things. Firstly, I believe it is part of the reason for Heaney's phenomenal success and sense of universality. Secondly, His use of classical reference lent a sense of gravity and severity to the events of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Not that they didn't have a sense of severity all by themselves, but it helped to translate it to a broader audience. Like many Northern Irish poets, Heaney was almost expected to speak about the immense violence taking place in his country from the 60s onwards. He wrote of them often, sometimes reluctantly, and other times with the fervour born of the need to understand the chaos around him but always with an immense sense of compassion for the ordinary people trapped in those horrific circumstances. Perhaps it was all these things in combination that saw him receive the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1995. All this is testament enough 
to the caliber of the poet that Seamus Heaney was, but maybe I should let the poetry speak for itself. The Hall Lantern is the titular poem that comes from his 1987 collection of the same name. The book is filled with poems seeking to make sense of what Northern Ireland was and was becoming. The collection is recognised as Heaney taking stock in the wake of the passing of both his mother and father. This led to a period of doubt and uncertainty for the poet. The Hall Lantern may be Heaney's way of seeking clarification through illumination then. Before we dive into the poem, I have a favour to ask. If you've been enjoying this episode so far, or if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, please consider leaving me a review wherever you listen. It really helps to get the podcast out to more people. With that being said, let's continue. The first stanza of this poem sets that Irish scene that Heaney was so famous for. The wintry haw is burning out of season. Crab of the thorn, a small light for small people, wanting no more from them but that they keep the wick of self-respect from dying out not having to blind them with illumination. Here, a powerful image of the uncanny is conjured. The wintry haw is a perfect example of the vernacular abbreviation that Heaney would often use to pull his audience directly into the Irish scene he was describing. In his use of haw, he is referring to the hawthorn tree itself. This is a very symbolic tree in the folklore of Ireland. As journalist Stephen Colton wrote, One of the fairy tree triad of Ireland, oak, ash and thorn, it was revered in ancient Brehan law, known as the commoner of the wood. Such sacred trees and groves were considered as sanctuaries and often used as locations for celebrations. Hence, any wanton cutting or destruction of them was a serious crime. Heaney would have been well aware of the significance of the tree, He continues with his typical abbreviation in the second line, referring to the crab of the thorn, or, in full, the crabapple of the hawthorn tree. These tiny bright red berries are the small light for small people, he writes about. The small people our speaker is referring to could be interpreted in two different ways. On the one hand, it could be a nod to the little people of Ireland, fairy folk for whom the tree is said to hold great significance. On the other hand, the small people could simply be a reference to the ordinary people of Northern Ireland, who were always front and centre in Heaney's work. Given that the hawthorn tree was known as the commoner's tree, this seems the most likely interpretation. Given Heaney's moments of doubt and the escalating tensions in the North during the 1980s, it is most likely that Heaney is referring to the ordinary people. The hawthorn is then given a will of its own, as its wants are laid bare wanting no more from them but that they keep the wick of self-respect from dying out. The wick of self-respect may be Heaney's hope that his country will survive the violence and chaos currently plaguing it without succumbing to the animalistic or primal responses that are always lingering around the edges of conflict. Those animalistic responses are the opposite of self-respect. In a simpler fashion, however, it could be a call for Northern Ireland to maintain some semblance of hope. The burning out of season then, the hawthorn shows its berries in autumn, is a call to stand against the times when things are at their darkest. This interpretation is given further credence when we realise that hope was a common association with the hawthorn tree in Old Ireland. As journalist Marion McGarry writes, we often also see the hawthorn tree 
sanctified at Christian holy wells, sometimes with offerings tied to it. These rag trees offer the hope that as the tide offering disintegrates, so too will the ailment or worry it was placed there to represent. The final line of the first stanza is an example of the density that is sometimes characteristic of Heaney's work, not having to blind them with illumination. For me, it is a simple allusion to the way in which the hawthorn tree can act as a gentle reminder not to lose hope. It achieves this without the need for any great underlining, but reminds people by its simple existence. If hope is the message of the first stanza, then the opposite seems to be true of the second. But sometimes, when your breath plumes in the frost, it takes the roaming shape of Diogenes with his lantern seeking one just man. So you end up scrutinized from behind the hall. He holds up at eye level on its twig and you flinch before its bonded pith and stone. It's blood prick that you wish would test and clear you. It's pecked at ripeness that scans you then moves on. The winter of the first stanza has intensified and we are met with the immediate contradiction of the word but. Heaney begins to feed his audience once more pulling them into the scene, first with the use of you, and then with the sensory feel of breath pluming in the cold. A touch of the uncanny is infused into the poem once more, as the figure of Diogenes forms from the stream of breath. Diogenes is an interesting inclusion. Widely recognized as one of the founders of cynicism, he was perhaps most notorious for his strange practice with a lantern. It's said that Diogenes would make his way through the city of Athens, holding a lantern during the day. He would confront citizens of the ancient city, holding the lantern to their faces. When asked why he did such a bizarre thing, he would simply reply that he was searching for a single, truly honest man. Naturally, he found none, and would turn from each face, finding them wanting. So why has this ancient seeker of truth grace the plains of Northern Ireland. He is performing the exact same ritual he did in ancient Greece, with his lantern seeking one just man. So you end up scrutinized from behind the hall he holds up at eye level on its twig. Heaney interprets his purpose as the hunt for one just man. Diogenes pours over the figure in front of the hawthorn tree, the hall lantern with its burning berries. There is so much fluidity here that is pure Seamus Heaney. The poem is a swim in a series of images all at once classical and contemporary, Irish and Greek, never staying solid enough to be pinned down to a single idea. We begin to understand that the you Heaney is referring to in the second stanza is more a third person recounting of an event that may be occurring to the poet himself. As previously mentioned, this poem came about at a time of great doubt and reassessing for Heaney. It is in these lines that he begins to look for solid ground, a stronger sense of the self that wasn't being eroded by outside circumstance. As the poem draws to a close, however, Heaney is left with no more certainty than he began with, and you flinch before its bonded pith and stone, its blood prick that you wish would test and clear you, its pecked at ripeness that scans you, then moves on. That flinch tells Diogenes, and thus the Hawthorne, all they need to know. It's interesting that Heaney describes the tree as bonded pith 
and stone, a recognition of the solidness of the nature before him, and a contrast with the person who just moved in its presence. The blood prick is a reference to the numerous thorns that grow about the tree. A touch of medical imagery enters the poem and the speaker finds themselves hoping for some kind of blood test that might clear them of the doubt they feel. Unfortunately, it is to no avail, as the pecked at ripeness, the burning hawthorn crab apples, weigh him, and much like Diogenes, move on, finding him utterly wanting. This is a powerful sequence of imagery, and typical of the sort that Seamus Heaney frequently wrote in his work. However, the dense beautiful imagery can be confusing. So what is the central message of the Hall Lantern? It must be important, as this is the poem that gave the name to an entire collection. As with much of Heaney's work, it helps to seek a little assistance with its meaning. Academic John Dillon had this to say on the devastating final lines of the poem. Since this poem gives its name to the collection, we may take it, I think, that Heaney intends its imagery to have central importance. Presumably, he wishes his poetry as a whole to act as a kind of lantern of Diogenes, probing our consciousness and separating out the bogus from the true. If we take this to be true, it would be very fitting of the poet who was obsessed with the boundaries between things, the liminal spaces that came to be when they were ill-defined, and how change eventually came to everything. Seamus Heaney's obsession with unearthing the true nature of things was the great driving force of his poetry. However, it rarely manifested in literal truth. His use of the natural landscape and entities from mythology were never meant to obscure the truths of the time he was living in, but rather give his reader a lens through which to better understand the world around them, sometimes mired by literal reality. The Hall Lantern is a perfect example. It is not flooded with folklore, but rather holds only one reference, infused gently throughout to better sharpen the point that Heaney is trying to make about doubt and uncertainty. His use of Diogenes, the father of cynicism, becomes a mirror for the poet's own skepticism of the things he once held concrete. Perhaps Dr. Ellen Howley put it best when she said, Heaney was a poet who drew from many wells. He turns to myth to see the contemporary more clearly, to understand it, to challenge it, to deepen it. Ten years on from his passing in 2013, audiences are still turning to his myth-making and poetry to better understand the world around them and the complex circumstances they find themselves in. He was a poet who remains a driving force, both for the everyman to better understand life and for poets to better understand how important their craft truly is. What did you think of the poem? As always, this is my interpretation, and I'd love to hear yours. If you'd like to get in touch with me, there are a few ways to do so. You can reach me directly by email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch through the podcast website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter or X at Words That Burn. I'm on Instagram at Words That Burn Podcast and TikTok at Words That Burn 2. If you'd like to read the script for this week's podcast, complete 
with citations and sources, check the Substack link in the description. If you enjoyed this episode or know someone who might, consider leaving me a review wherever you listen or sending the episode directly to them. Words That Burn is written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast once again.